There I went. I knew it was coming. <clears throat> I thought, I probably shouldn't set this here. And I did it anyway. Well, we begin a new series of messages today. Uh, for the summer, what we're going to do is walk through several passages, scenes really, from the life of Jesus and or some of the apostles, and consider the ways that Jesus and his apostles engaged with unbelief around them. How did Jesus and his apostles engage non-believers in, in, that they came into contact with as they moved along? I'm basing the, the series title, you may see it in your bulletin, as Words of Life. I'm basing the, the title on Peter's pronouncement in John 6, verse 68. At the end, so John 6 is this chapter where there's been crazy stuff happening. Jesus has gathered a multitude of thousands of people, and he's fed them miraculously with a couple of loaves of bread and a fish, and they've had more than they needed to eat. And then he's begun teaching, and they've been listening to his teaching, and his teaching just gets stranger and harder. And so he says things like, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have eternal life. And people are going, I don't know what I got myself into here. And so by the end of chapter 6, the crowd has dwindled, and Jesus' followers of some thousands, 5,000 plus, probably at least twice that much, including women and children who weren't numbered in a count like that, it's dwindled from multiple thousands of people to the 12. It's just the 12. And we're reminded in John 6 that one of them is a devil, speaking, of course, of Judas, who would betray Jesus sometime later. So we've gone from thousands to basically 11 faithful. And Jesus asks them, do you want to go away too? And Peter's declaration of faith in that moment was, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. The words of life. Jesus' teaching, Jesus' message, the, the good news that he announced, that he indeed embodied, are what Peter is hanging on to here. We have nowhere else to go because your words are the words of life. And indeed, the words of life comprise the message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God about which Jesus preached. If you look at Jesus' life even briefly in the Gospels, you can see very quickly that evangelism, that is a, the speaking, the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, was Jesus' priority. For example, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we're told Jesus went through all the towns and villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That was Matthew's summary statement of his ministry as he went from place to place. What's he doing? He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. In Mark 1, 38, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go on to the next town so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. So the preaching, the announcing of the kingdom of God, the good news of God's kingdom is why Jesus came, and it characterized his earthly ministry. It was the focus of his ministry to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And it's been handed down to his followers through the ages. And I would argue is still the crux of our life and mission as a church. Here's a couple of commands that you're probably familiar with. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says this, Go 
into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. This is the marching orders for the church. Go all the world, preach the gospel. That's announce, proclaim good news to all creation. And then in Matthew 28, verse 19, make disciples of all nations, right? Go therefore, verses you're very familiar with. So this, is, this was the ministry priority of Jesus. It was the ministry priority of the apostles, if you were to look at the book of Acts. And it is still the ministry priority of every church that faithfully follows Jesus to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So, gospel proclamation, what is often called evangelism, is the central task of the church and of, I would argue, every individual disciple of Jesus. And yet, it doesn't come easy, does it? We struggle so much with this call, with this command. I think we all have the sense, Jesus wants me to do this. But we all have our own internal list of reasons why it's probably better to leave it to somebody else. Right? We all struggle with these things. Me too. Don't think pastors are exempt. I have the same list in my mind that I wrestle through on a regular basis. There are so many challenges to sharing the good news of the kingdom. So many fears, so many objections, so many obstacles, so many rationalizations we make. Maybe this is not the right time. Maybe I don't have the right personality. Maybe that person's not in a frame of mind to receive it. We have all kinds of reasons that we can sort of justify just keeping quiet until maybe the next time. So the premise of this series of messages is that gospel proclamation is central to the, call, the calling of all Jesus followers. And my hope, my goal for the series is that the Holy Spirit would use the few minutes that we'll spend together each week in this series to equip and empower us for the good work that he's given us to do. The strategy that I'm taking in order to achieve that goal is to explore several scenes in the life of Jesus and the apostles in order to illustrate some important principles and practices of evangelism that we can learn and adopt in our own evangelistic efforts. So, and in the coming and going of summer as people are traveling and things like this, it makes some sense for each message to be a little bit more standalone, kind of stand on its own terms. So there's a thematic connection to them, but we're not walking through a book of the Bible like we kind of prefer and like I typically do. Uh, but we'll take an individual scene each of the Sundays of this kind of summer series and glean what we can from the way that Jesus and the apostles engage with non-believers. The first one we're going to look at today is John chapter 4. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I'd invite you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4, where Jesus meets a woman of Samaria at a well in the middle of the day. And as we walk through the story, I'm going to try to draw out four observations that may shape our own engagements with non-believers in our lives. We'll start by reading the first six verses. So look at John chapter 4, 
I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour being noon, the hottest part of the day. The sun has traveled to its highest point of the journey, its journey into the sky, and it is blazing hot, I would imagine, at noon in Samaria. So the scene is set here for Jesus to have an encounter that is remarkable for a number of reasons. But the first thing I want to point out to you here, uh, well, actually, not yet. Jesus' choice to head to Galilee is, we're told in the first verse here, because the Pharisees have learned, basically, that Jesus' ministry is taking off, all right? So John the Baptist had his ministry, and people were coming to him, and he was baptizing them, and now it seems like Jesus is gaining popularity, and John's disciples are starting to follow Jesus, and Jesus, not himself, but his disciples, we're told, are baptizing more people even than John the Baptist. And so the Pharisees have learned that Jesus is gaining popularity and that his ministry is outstripping even that of John the Baptist. And this new knowledge on the part of the Pharisees who hate Jesus would probably have drawn them to confront him or to solicit information or actions out of him for which it's not yet time. Time is very important, as we'll see in just a minute. But Jesus' sense of his father's work that he's come to do and the timing of what he can do and what he should not yet do regularly guide how Jesus acts and what he says and when he leaves one place and goes to another. And so in this case, the Pharisees were likely to begin pressing in on Jesus and creating something of a public controversy that's not yet time for that to happen. And so Jesus uh, moves along. When he learned that the Pharisees had found out that he was baptizing more, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee to the north. All right. So they've been down in uh, Jerusalem and now they've got to travel north to get to Galilee, north along the Jordan River. And so we have this little detail in verse 4. He's left Judea. He's going to head north to Galilee. And verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Well, basically, no, he didn't. He didn't have to pass through Samaria. It's true that it would be the geographically most direct path. Judea is here, Samaria is here, Galilee's here. So it would make a lot of sense. It would save a lot of time to go straight from Judea through Samaria to Galilee. So you might read, he had to go through Samaria and go, well, of course he did, because it was between Judea and Galilee. But the fact is, Jews of that day regularly avoided going through Samaria. You see, by this time, there is significant ethnic, social, and religious conflict and prejudice between Jews and Samaritans, especially on the part of the Jews who regarded the Samaritans as sort of half-breeds and not true Jews. 
they regularly avoided going through Samaria. And so when someone from, that was in Judea <clears throat> needed to get to Galilee, that was to the north of Samaria, what they would do is they would cross the Jordan River to the east and then travel north and get high north enough that they would be past Samaria. And then they'd travel west again back across the Jordan in order to avoid setting foot in Samaria. That was the typical practice of the Jews in that day. So to say he had to pass through Samaria must mean something other than that was the only route that could be taken. Because in fact, most Jews did not take that route. No, what we're told is something different. That he had to pass through Samaria clues us into something else in the mind and heart of Jesus. This is not the, just because it's the easiest geographic route. It is a purposeful and gracious choice on the part of the Lord. That Greek word that's translated as he had to, day, gives the sense of compulsion. And John uses it elsewhere in his gospel to demonstrate Jesus' divine compulsion to accomplish the mission for which his father had sent him. These are like divine missional imperatives. Jesus had to blank. Well, the had to wasn't, that was the only option he had. It was that this is what he came to do. Here's a few examples of that in John. In John 3, 14, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the son of man must be, that's that word day, the son of man must be lifted up. Speaking of his crucifixion, he didn't have to be crucified and that he couldn't find a way around that. He had to be lifted up in his crucifixion because that is what his father gave him to do. In John 9, 4, before he heals a man who was blind from birth, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. In John 10, 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. This is the mission. This is the purpose for which I came. And in John 20, verse 9, we're told that these things happened in order to fulfill a prophecy fulfill a prophecy that he must rise from the dead. So in all of those cases and more, that word had to or must aren't referring to just the bare basic option, the only option that he had. They're referring to the sense of his divine mission. Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Is it because it was the easiest geographical route to get to Galilee? No, it's because he had a mission there. God had a meeting that he had to keep in Samaria. And so he traveled through Samaria. And so the first observation is simply this. Jesus is always on mission. Jesus is always on mission. Up to and including simple things like, which route am I going to take? Jesus is always on mission. And I think we should think about our lives in that way. To that level of detail, is there a purpose that God may have for me in this moment or in this conversation or in this trip or this outing or this task? Jesus is always on mission. Let's keep reading. Verses 7 down through 15. <clears throat> so Jesus has made it to this well. In Sychar, which is the Old Testament town of Shechem. We read a bit about Shechem in our series on Joseph earlier this year. 
And here, indeed, we're at Jacob's well. And so he's at the well at about noon, and he's waiting. Waiting, resting, because he's tired, and waiting, I think, for this meeting that he knows he has to keep. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city for food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So this woman comes to the well where Jesus is waiting. And when she comes, he begins a conversation. And he starts with this simple instruction. Give me water to drink. Now, this is shocking and countercultural for a Jewish man to engage a Samaritan woman in conversation. That, on its own, is a cultural taboo that he's breaking. But it's more than just that. He's not just talking to her, he's not just dealing with her. He is asking her to share from her drawing vessel, from her water bucket and she seems to recognize how out of step with the cultural norms this is in verse 9 where she says how is it that you a Jew ask for me a drink from me a woman of Samaria and then we have this little commentary from John for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans and that literally translated as Jews do not use with Samaritans and so the cultural taboo that's being broached here is not just a social conversational norm. What's being broached here is that Jesus is inviting this Samaritan woman, this unclean person, to share a water vessel with him. Jesus boldly disregards cultural norms, and it enters into a relationship with this woman in this moment. He's not clueless. He's not stumbling into these cultural violations. It's not like he needed somebody there with him to be like, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, we don't do that, right? He knows what he's doing. He has intentionally broken the Jewish norm of going around Samaria but instead going right into Samaria so that he can meet with this woman. And when he meets her, he doesn't just talk to her. He says, let me drink from your bucket. 
and this is so far beyond the norms and what was acceptable to the religious Jews at that time that we cannot miss Jesus' intentionality here. And then he says, after she asks, how is it that you ask me for a drink? Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink. Pause there for just a minute. I wonder how your, your imagination would fill in the rest of that sentence. So Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, has come to this woman and said, give me a drink. And instead of complying, she has said, how is it that you ask me for a drink? And he says, if you knew who I was, what do you, what do you expect him to say? You would do this right away. You would have obeyed immediately. You would have complied without question. But is that what Jesus says? Well, look what he says. If you knew who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What a remarkable turn. So here's the second observation that I draw from this. Jesus postures himself as a servant. It wouldn't be wrong for him to demand obedience, right? He created this woman. It wouldn't be wrong for him to say, just, just do what I say. But that's not his posture toward her at all. His posture is, I want to give to you. I want to help you. I want to serve you. And if you only knew what I have available to me, you would have asked, please give me what you have, and I would have gladly, freely, fully given that is the heart of Jesus toward this woman. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. That, by the way, is identified by John in chapter 7 as the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to just run over there real quick. John 7, verses 37 to 39 on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This sounds very familiar, doesn't it? To that personal invitation he gave to the Samaritan woman. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John tells us in verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so this gift of living water that he's talking about is, of course, not literal water. The gift he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. It's eternal life. It's his presence. Well, she doesn't get it. That's another theme in the Gospel of John, if you're reading through it. She doesn't understand his sort of metaphorical meaning, and she takes him literally. So she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, not only do we recognize, okay, she's not quite getting the level at which Jesus is speaking here, we also start to get a glimpse into her personal pain. We start to get a sense 
of what she is dealing with in her life. We already have one clue to this, namely that she's drawing water at noon. She has chosen the hottest part of the day to come to the well and draw water. Where most women would have gone in the morning, at the beginning of the day, or at sundown at the end of the day to get water for the next day in order to avoid the scorching heat of the noonday sun. And so we begin to get a glimpse that this woman is carrying some deep and heavy burdens. And so when she says, please give me this water so I don't have to come here anymore, you can hear the weariness in her voice about the act day after day of coming into town, coming to the well in order to draw this water. And you start to get a sense something is going on here. And as the story unfolds, as the conversation continues, we'll begin to learn a bit about her past, some secrets in her life, some shame that she's carrying. And we recognize pretty quickly, she is avoiding people. That's why she's at the well at noon. She is trying to stay away from the crowds. She's imagining, I'm sure, the, the chatter around the well. If she had gone in the morning when all the other women of the town were there, the chatter, the sideways glances, the judgmental stares of the other townspeople. She is ashamed. And so she cannot even stomach being around the other people in the town. And so she, day after day, comes at the hottest part of the day to draw water from this deep well, which would be pretty hard work. Well, how does Jesus engage with her obvious shame? Rather, at this point, it's probably implicit. It's going to get more obvious as we go. Let's look at verses 16 through 20. So she has said to him, give me this water so that I won't have to be thirsty or come here to draw water. It's verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And we'll pause there. So Jesus gives her an instruction, go and get your husband. He already knows the answer, obviously. He already knows that she doesn't quote-unquote have a husband, and so when she says, I don't have a husband, he says, oh, that's true. Because you're actually not married to the guy you're with right now. And you've had five husbands before him. This is an interesting turn of the conversation. And at first, it might seem that Jesus is being kind of cruel. Like, what, are you, what is he doing here? What, what is his aim? So what he, what he does, what it accomplishes, is that it exposes her sin. It draws her shame out into the light. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now, you're not married to. 
So it draws her shame out into the light. But why? What is his purpose? Is it to condemn her? Is it so that he can preach to her about marital fidelity and all the ways that she's failed? Is it just to make her feel crummy about herself? Is it so that he can deliver one of those sort of hellfire and brimstone kind of messages about how all the unbelievers are going to go to hell? I don't think that's what he's after. He's not just trying to embarrass her here. He's trying to get to her heart. He's trying to expose what's there beneath the surface that she's been hiding for years and years so that he can start to deal with it, so that he can start to minister to her in that. You see, the water that he offers is not, merely, is not for the body. It's not water that you drink. It's water for the heart. And she won't recognize it or receive it unless he can penetrate her defenses and get to her heart. And so this is a strategy, a fairly bold conversational strategy, to try to get to what's really going on. And ultimately to expose her need for living water. She says, I have no husband. J.I. Packer says, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. So it's true that you have no husband, but only in a very technical sense, right? Is that true? This woman has had five marriages. She's been involved with six men. What does this tell us about her? I think for one thing it tells us that she desires something that she believes will be found in men. Perhaps it's security or comfort. We're not sure what it is. Or, or in, in relationships or, or whatever. She's desiring something, but she's looking in the wrong place. She obviously isn't finding it there in men, right? First one didn't work, second one didn't work, third one didn't work, fourth one didn't work, fifth one didn't work, sixth one we're not even going to bother calling it marriage, right? It's, it's not working. She's not finding in it what she's hoping for, but there's some desire that is unmet, and she keeps looking for love in all the wrong places, to quote the old country song. It's also possible that she's been victimized by men. Perhaps what we learn here is that she's been preyed upon by men who have taken advantage of her vulnerability, and each successive marriage leaves her more vulnerable than the last. Whatever the situation, and we don't know all the details of it, there is deep unmet need and desire, and there is perhaps mistreatment, there is pain, there is wounds. There is shame. She is ashamed of what she's experienced and of her life. So her laundry list of failed relationships and social rejection and personal disgrace have led her to complete social isolation. She's just hiding from people. This woman doesn't have friends. This woman doesn't have people to turn to. This woman doesn't have anyone to call on. She is coming to the well to draw water in the heat of the noonday sun to avoid being around other people. 
I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Have you ever felt shame, guilt, embarrassment to such a degree that it's just easier to not be around anybody? If I go there, someone's going to ask me a question that'll make me very uncomfortable. It's going to expose me somehow. So I'll just steer clear of relationships altogether. Maybe you can identify. Well, Jesus knows this. He knows this about you. And he knows this about this woman that he's talking to. And because of that, his exposing of her sin and shame is not for the purpose of condemnation, but mercy. His heart toward her is not to condemn her, it's to show her compassion. It's not to shame her, but to reveal to her that the nagging, never-satisfied thirst for wholeness and healing that she is seeking is actually there to lead her to Jesus himself as the answer to her deepest needs. And so that's the third observation that I would make from this conversation. Jesus sees her sin as a misguided expression of her need for him. Jesus sees her sin as an expression of her need for him. She's looking in the wrong places, but what that is doing is exposing her real need for Jesus himself. Because he knows, I know what you need. I have what you need. Indeed, I am what you need. You need living water, and you're searching in all the wrong cisterns. You're opening these broken wells and hoping what you find there will satisfy you, and it won't. That's what he means when he says, whoever drinks from this well will thirst again. He's not just talking about physically. This won't satisfy you. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't boycott her. His interactions with her, specific expressions of sinfulness, are couched in compassion. There's a word for us here. The church too often views sinners as enemies. right? Those people out there with all of those problems. Rather than seeing the sadness of their spiritual brokenness and moving toward them with compassion and mercy and love. Sinners aren't our enemies. We're sinners too. We've just been shown mercy. Jesus isn't afraid to bring a sinner's shame to the surface, but it's always in an effort to meet that shame with grace that runs even deeper. It's to bring that shame to the light so that he can cover it with grace. May we, as his people, carry his heart towards sinners. By the way, if you think that a husband or a wife or a child or some other human relationship will satisfy the deepest caverns of longing in your soul, you're deceived. It's only Jesus and the living water he offers that will provide the wholeness and peace that you crave. Well, I want you to notice some, another interesting thing in this conversation. It doesn't end right here. 
It would be really natural and understandable if this woman at this point was like, and I'm done, you're just like everybody else. All you're doing is out to embarrass me and shame me. I'm finished. But she stays in the conversation. She hangs with him. I think there's a bit of courage reflected in that because she's kind of on the hot seat, so to speak. She's had this sin and shame exposed So it's probably courageous to remain in the conversation. But I think more than that, what we see here is hope. Maybe she sees something. Maybe she recognizes something in what Jesus is offering that's worth sticking around for. And so she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. How did you come to that conclusion, I wonder? She recognized him as as a prophet because he knows her life, right? He says stuff that he shouldn't know. And we see later that her mind is even more made up about that fact, that he's a prophet. But So she stays in the conversation and she recognizes, you, you must be a prophet. Like, you must be from God to know what you know. But she changes the subject a bit, doesn't she? Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place that, where, where people ought to worship. Why, why is she changing the conversation? Well, surely at one level, and on the surface, it's just because this is uncomfortable, I need to scoot to another topic. That's natural, that's reasonable, and that could be a part of what's going on. But I think maybe there's more to it than that. So at this point, the division between Jews and Samaritans that I mentioned earlier has led to the point where the Samaritans have like their own version of the Bible and their own uh, distinct place and pattern of worship. Like they're, they really live in very different ways, although the Samaritans are trying to worship Yahweh, the same God. They just have different ways that they go about it. And so she brings this up. There may be some interest in the controversy she brings up, uh, and it, it, more than just a, a diversion, right, to get Jesus' attention away from her uh, by talking about theology here. But Jesus engages it. And I think if Jesus thought this was a waste of time, he wouldn't go there, right? He would get back to where he wanted to be. But he follows this rabbit trail a little bit. Well, give, talk to me about the theology of worship, Jesus. Okay, I'll go there, right? And so he follows it. And so here, here's my, the fourth observation that I'll, that I'll offer Jesus is willing to engage the theological questions of a non-believer. He's willing to engage the theological questions of a non-believer. It's not off limits. It's not off topic. Yeah, I'm glad you have that question. Let's talk about it. Right? He goes there. Don't always assume that theology is irrelevant to non-believers. There are legitimate hang-ups and questions and and seeming contradictions that people wrestle with when it comes to engaging with the Christian faith and understanding the Bible. What is the nature of the Bible? What can we trust the Bible? What, what about this claim that God is three in one? And did Jesus really rise from the dead? And how could we know that? People can have all manner of questions about the Christian faith and theology. And it's not always a fool's errand to try to answer them. I think sometimes we can have the sense of like, well, they wouldn't really understand it anyway until they come to a place of, of faith and believing that what God said is true. And there might be something to be said for that. But at the, at the, the bottom line is, we should be willing to engage people's curiosity about the faith. 
So the very fact that Jesus has the conversation implies that he has a missional intention in addressing this theological issue. He's not just following a rabbit trail, like a professor who uh, will always follow some pet topic if you can get him talking about it. That's not what's going on here. And so we should keep our eyes open to how his teaching on worship that he's about to give might be understood in the light of his intention to open this woman's heart to her need for him. Because that's what he's trying to do. So let's look at what he says in verses 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So his conversation, his answer here about worship, uh, highlights the kind of already and not yet aspect of God's kingdom, right? So an hour is coming, and it's now here, right? So the, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is here. It's inaugurated in the person and work of, of Jesus himself. So it's, it's here, but it's not yet here all the way, right? Where God will seek worshipers not on any particular mountain or by any particular tradition, but in the person of Jesus himself. That's what he draws out. The, the location of worship will be obsolete. The centrality of the temple will be done away. Generations of Old Testament law and practice will have been fulfilled and set aside. The church will be the new temple in Christ, irrespective of location. And the New Testament, therefore, turns worship to the heart. And it's a clear and substantial movement away from the Old Covenant to the New, Right? the Old Testament worship of repeated sacrifice, to the New Testament worship of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. And so he's speaking here of the, the transition that's in process. The way for your worship to be acceptable to God is to worship by faith in Jesus Christ, is the simplest way to summarize what all of that means. But how does this teaching tie into the, Jesus' goal of opening this woman's heart to living water? Well, so he's gotten below the surface, right, by exposing her sin and shame. He's revealed her true need, her true desire for living water by bringing up her string of husbands and failed relationships. And now he shows her that there are no physical, geographical, racial, or spiritual barriers to her receiving this living water. It's not a rabbit trail after all. I am, Jesus is here in front of the Samaritan woman offering her living water. And not only is her own shame a hang-up and in the way, her very cultural and religious identity are in the way. And what Jesus is saying with this little teaching on the nature of Christian worship is there are no more barriers. It doesn't matter that you're not a Jew there is no barrier here anymore. All you have to do is come. That's what he's doing here. The theology 
of worship here makes the decisive point that racial, social, religious, economic, and gender distinctions cannot keep anyone away from becoming a true worshiper. We need to have that conviction about the gospel of the kingdom that we preach. There's nothing standing in the way except unbelief itself. And in fact, Jesus says the Father is seeking such people. Did you know that? Did you know the Father seeks people? Did you know the Father is after your heart? He's pursuing you to get your attention, to get your affection, to draw you to belief. Remember Jesus' intentionality. Could it be that the Father is seeking you today to worship him through faith in Jesus and so receive the living water? satisfy your thirsty soul well let's see her response in verses 25 to 30 the woman said to him i know that messiah is coming he who is called christ when he comes he will tell us all things jesus said to her i who speak to you am he just then his disciples came back they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her because maybe they've learned by now we should just watch and listen. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. All right, she's starting to get it, isn't she? I know that Messiah is coming. This promised deliverer, this anointed ruler, I know that he's coming. And I think there's an implied question in this. When she says, I know that Messiah is coming and he'll explain all this when he comes. I think she's kind of asking without asking, is that who you are? I think that's what she's doing. And I believe that there's faith behind it. And Jesus seems to perceive the same thing because he gives her a plain answer, doesn't he? I who speak to you am and in Greek, the words emphasized there are, I am. I am. So, she asks, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am. And so the conversation has come all the way around to the point that Jesus was aiming for it to get to. Where you recognize, I am the one who has the ability to give you the eternal life the gift of the Spirit, the living water that you really need. And so the disciples come back, and the woman leaves. I want you to notice two details as we wrap up here. Two details about how she leaves. Number one, she left her water jar. Do you see that? Verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away. She's forgotten all about the water. This is the whole reason she came out. At the hottest part of the day, the whole point of her trip was to draw water. And she doesn't even remember that's what she came for. She went to the well for a drink of water, but she's leaving the well with water for her soul. She had found in Jesus' invitation the living water that quenched the thirst of her desperation and brokenness so that the water jar was useless to her. 
I don't care about the water anymore. That can't meet my needs. I've met the one who can. She left her jar. Oh, that we would leave our water buckets behind. The empty vessels that we drink from over and over again, looking for satisfaction, hoping for joy, and coming up dry again and again. Leave it. Leave your bucket behind and take from Jesus the living water that alone will satisfy your thirsty soul. And the second thing I want you to notice is where she went. Verse 28, she left her water jar, and where'd she go? She went away into town and said to the people, wait a minute, she's been avoiding these people probably for years. The whole reason she was at the well for Jesus to talk with her is because she came at noon when nobody else would be there. And now that she's met Jesus and she's received the living water that he gives, the first thing she does is, I'm going to town to tell those people who I met. Her shame is so removed, so undone, she is confident. Not only does Jesus know everything I've ever done, he loves me like no one ever has. That, friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the kingdom. No matter what you've done, he knows it, but he loves you like no one ever has and like no one else can. I can't see your heart. Jesus can. I don't know the burdens, the disgrace, the shame that you're carrying around and maybe running from, but Jesus does. And just as Jesus saw the brokenness of this woman and generously offered her the gift of living water, the hope of eternal life, he offers the very same gift to everyone today who would trust in him for eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this living water that you have given to us. The Holy Spirit who wells up like a spring of water to eternal life in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that we would learn from this encounter that Jesus had about our own need and your provision of living water that can meet all of our needs and quench all of our thirst and lead us to eternal life and hope. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn from this story how we can rightly engage with those around us who are in need, who need to be made aware of their ultimate need for Christ and to be drawn to the one who can satisfy the thirst in their souls. Equip us, empower us, embolden us. Enable us by your Spirit at work and alive in us to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to offer the same living water that you have extended to all who would believe. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.